The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am delighted to welcome my guest, Dr. Susan Swithers. She is a professor in the Department of Psychological Sciences in the College of Health and Human Sciences at Purdue University. She has an interesting background in that she is a professor of psychological sciences and a behavioral neuroscientist, but her work involves looking at artificial sweeteners of late and sweeteners in general and how those compounds affect our weight. So welcome, Dr. Swithers. It's a pleasure to have you. Thanks for having me. Well, I have a number of your research papers in front of me. And I, too, have been very curious about how sugar and sweeteners function in our food supply, probably more so in the area of obesity and metabolic syndrome. But I was really intrigued by how media has portrayed your research. And so what I'd like to do is talk a little bit about artificial sweeteners, their safety, how they function in the body, but then also talk about who might not be happy with your research results. Tell me, how did you become interested in this topic? This is one of those answers where it's not a straight line. So my background, as you mentioned, um, I'm a professor of psychological science. That means that my training is in psychology, um, and all of my work starting in graduate school really was looking at questions related to how kind of eating behavior is affected by experience. So I trained looking at how young animals develop the ability to recognize whether they should eat or not. This is one of those questions where you would think we would know the answer to that. What what are the signals that our bodies and our brains give us that tell us it's time to eat? But the reality is that we still don't know the answer to that question. So I came at this from a background where we were interested in understanding kind of the roles of experience and learning might play in shaping how animals, and when I say animals, I include humans in that, but how we actually begin to recognize signals that tell us whether it's time to eat or not. And I think that many people are probably familiar, the the psychologist they first hear about is Pavlov because Pavlov's work was really fundamental to to basic learning questions. And so if you know that Pavlov is a psychologist, he wasn't really a psychologist, he was a digestive physiologist. So there's, there's always been this very clear link between kind of experience and psychology and the control of eating behavior. And that's really where I came at this from. And Pavlov's work, what it told us was that we can respond to uh, signals in our environment that tell us when something important is going to happen. That's the, the basis of, of Pavlovian or classical conditioning, that, that we pay attention to things in the environment that are predictable. And that helps us kind of prepare for what's going to happen next. So in his case, 
the dogs would begin to um, produce saliva. They'd salivate. They'd turn on actually a whole bunch of different digestive responses when they heard sounds that suggested they were going to get food or when they smelled the food. So even before food had made it into their bodies, they were getting ready for that to happen. And so my interest in trying to understand what might be going on with sweeteners really came about from looking at what was happening, you know, in the U.S. as well as worldwide with regard to the ability to to regulate food intake, body weight, and health. So if you understand that, that there's kind of this experience effect, that consuming foods produces predictable outcomes, then you can also recognize there might be a problem if consuming a particular food no longer produces the outcome it's supposed to. So we've started to recognize for the past 15 to 20 years that the amount of sugar in our diets has gone up dramatically. And that's really something that a lot of people are paying a lot of attention to now. And sugar is a really good example of a signal that is very tightly coupled to a predictable outcome. When you get sugar, you get energy or in the form of calories, and you actually get sugar that your body has to deal with. And so we thought that what might be going on is that as soon as something sweet hits your mouth, that you produce a bunch of signals, a bunch of responses before you've even begun to metabolize that sugar. And we've known that to be the case for a long time. So what artificial sweeteners do from a learning perspective is they activate the mouth with these sweet tastes, but then the sugar doesn't arrive. And that's thought to be a good thing, but from a learning perspective, it suggests it might not be so good, that it might undermine this kind of basic learning process. So that was really this recognition that as we are starting to see an increase in intake of these products, it goes kind of hand-in-hand with an increase in the inability of people to regulate their body weights in a healthy range. Mm -hmm. And I would think that the response would be different if the person was consuming an artificial sweetener in isolation, so for example, just sitting down with a can of diet soda versus sitting down with a can of diet soda and a meal that contains carbohydrate. Well, that's what you would predict. We haven't directly tested that hypothesis, but certainly most of the long-term data we have on artificial sweeteners comes from looking at beverage intake because mm-hmm. and that's primarily because until the the past maybe 10 years or so most of the artificial sweetener intake was in the form of beverages and both sugar sweetened beverages and artificially sweetened beverages have started to get a lot more attention because we've now recognized the exponential growth in their consumption so 40 years ago when I was a kid, we didn't drink sugar-sweetened or certainly diet beverages every day. They were were kind of an occasional treat. And that's really been shifted significantly so that there are a ton of people who consume not even just a single sweetened beverage every day, but multiple either sugar-sweetened or artificially sweetened beverages every single day. So it's certainly possible that it is significantly more problematic to be drinking or consuming these sweeteners on their own than it would be in the context of a meal. 
at the same time, there are other hypotheses and other um, mechanisms that may be involved in kind of producing some of the outcomes that we think are associated with artificial sweeteners where it may not matter whether you're consuming them with or without other carbohydrates, that, that the sweeteners themselves can be having not just effects on this kind of learning process that we think is important, but on other kinds of outcomes as well. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about one of those alternative mechanisms. The research I've seen lately looks at the role of artificial sweeteners and how they affect the microbiome, or specifically the microbes in our intestines, our large intestines, and how that might be affecting our weight overall. Exactly. And I want to point out, one of the things I think it's really important to pay attention to is that this isn't just about weight, that we tend to focus on weight because it's a reasonably good proxy of health outcomes, but it's not a perfect proxy of health outcomes, and that we can see problematic effects of sweeteners even if people either don't gain weight or may even lose some weight. So, What's really concerning about the sweeteners and in the context of the microbiome is that the sweeteners seem to be shifting the the kinds of bacteria that are in the gut and that that might be contributing to the inability to regulate blood sugar levels where they ought to be. So that may or may not be connected to the ability to regulate weight overall. But if you're not controlling your blood sugars appropriately, that's the hallmark or the kind of beginning of, of diabetes. And that's the reason we're really concerned about things like obesity is because we know that it's a big predictor of the development of type 2 diabetes. So the sweeteners, there's evidence, It you know, it's not a ton of evidence because we're really now just starting to understand the role of the microbiome in so many different processes. But there's evidence that, that a couple different kinds of sweeteners can in fact shift the sorts of bacteria that are in the gut. And what that may do is either by changing how those bacteria are actually, the kinds of things that those bacteria are doing, the kinds of foods, how they actually um, metabolize the foods we eat, or direct effects of those bacteria um, or the, the sweeteners on other metabolic processes, they could contribute to high blood sugar levels in people who might otherwise seem healthy. So this would be independent from the insulin response that one would expect when one is consuming something sweet. Exactly. And I think that it's fair to say right now that we have lots of open questions about what specific mechanisms are actually contributing. And it depends a lot on which specific sweetener you're talking about, the particulars of of how you're asking the question, and especially when we start to talk about what we know in humans. There are some really intriguing data that suggest that these sweeteners can trigger excess glucose production even when excess insulin may be released. Now, I don't know how much stock to put in those data because these are are data that are, you know, kind of presented at posters as opposed to already being peer-reviewed. So right now we're, we're kind of in a speculative phase. But for a long time there's been this assumption that all of the sweeteners, because they've been FDA approved, that they're they're inert, that they don't do anything, that we consume them and they pass out of our bodies and they, they don't have any 
specific effects on metabolism that we ought to be concerned about. And I would say that over the past five to ten years, what we've discovered that is that's not really an accurate statement, that some of these sweeteners are are doing things that we didn't recognize, that we didn't really understand the microbiome and the role it was going to play. So, it, you know, if you don't really know what the mechanism is, it's hard to know what the right questions to ask are. So, exactly. you know, that, that's kind of one of the issues is that we don't know what, what mechanisms we should be looking at. And so that I, I like to point out that's one of the advantages of doing the kind of work that I do. This is what animal models can be helpful for, not necessarily identifying what the specific mechanism is that's operating in people, but giving us some clues under really controlled circumstances of what's possible. What could be going on? Is there any evidence that this kind of thing is happening? And then we can take those questions to people. Mm-hmm. This is so interesting because we have to also fold in food policies. And so I was really curious about some of the unintended consequences related to sugar taxes or soda taxes, that if we put a tax on the sugar-sweetened beverages, what that would do in terms of driving artificial sweetened beverage consumption. And similarly, when and I'm happy that the FDA is finally going to have an added sugar line on food so that we can tell, you know, how much sugar was in the food naturally versus how much was added. But what will that do? Will that make a label of a food that's been artificially sweetened appear to be better than a food that's had sugar added? Right. And, you know, that's where the questions um, become a little thorny. So I'm, I'm typically asked whether it's better to drink a regular soda or a diet soda mm-hmm. um, because, the, because of this very issue of, you know, if we, we crack down on sugar, are we going to increase the intake of these other sweeteners? And my response to the diet soda, regular soda question is that it's a terrible question, that really we need to be paying attention to all of the sweeteners that have actually been added to our food and beverage supply. So we are consuming everything. Everything we eat and drink is is really hyper-sweetened. And so from one perspective, the data seem pretty clear that if you're going to drink a liter of soda a day, that you're going to get a worse outcome particularly over the short term, if that is a liter of sugar-sweetened soda than a liter of diet soda. But the fact that we're contemplating the question of (laughs) a liter of soda a day gives you an idea of of how sick our food supply actually is. So I think that this idea that we can take out sugar and simply replace the sugar with artificial sweeteners, that that is really problematic, that we do not have any good data that demonstrates that's actually going to help in any way. And we have reason to believe, both from a learning perspective and from some of these other mechanistic perspectives, that adding the the artificial sweetener could then make it more difficult to deal with the real sugar that's coming along with it. So I definitely think that, that consumers really deserve the information, that we really do need to be able to understand that that yogurt that we're consuming has more sugar in it than the ice cream, that people, you know, people think they're being good parents and they're not going to let their kids have ice cream every single day. 
but they give them yogurt, which has more sugar, (laughs) you know, than the ice cream does. We also know that people's food preferences are really shaped, um, especially early on, by what it is they're actually fed. So by simply replacing sugar with artificial sweeteners, we're maintaining the status quo that everything is supposed to be hyper-sweetened. And I've been struck, uh, before I, I started doing this work, I tended to avoid artificial sweeteners mostly because I personally didn't like the taste of them. But once I started to do this work, then I started to pay a lot more attention to which products actually contain artificial sweeteners. And I was shocked to discover that there are English muffins that contain not just sucrose or table sugar, but also sucralose or the artificial sweetener that's in Splenda. Right. Um, I don't think that most people consider an English muffin to be a sweet food. Right. So you start to think, if we've gotten to the point where it's necessary to add Splenda or sucralose to English muffins for people to find them acceptable, what have we done? <laughs> exactly. Let me take one break and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, where we are joined by a fascinating research topic and researcher, Dr. Susan Swithers. She's at Purdue University. She holds a Ph.D. from Duke University in behavioral neuroscience, and she is focusing on artificial sweeteners, sweeteners, and all kinds of metabolic aberrations related to those. Okay, is there anything else you want to say at this point about sugar, artificial sweeteners, and how we metabolize those? Well, I think that what's important to understand is that we think that the artificial sweeteners have what we've called a counterintuitive effect. And it could be that the artificial sweeteners themselves are driving responses, but I really think that the issue is that the artificial sweeteners are making it more difficult to deal with the real sugars we're consuming. So it's kind of a double whammy. We've got a, a very hyper-sweetened food supply where we're eating and drinking much more sugar than we probably should be, and that people think that they're helping themselves by introducing the artificial sweeteners because they're reducing the sugar. But we have reasons to believe that by doing that, you're actually making it more difficult to deal with the sugar that still continues to be included in the diet at a very high level. So it's kind of a good news, bad news situation for a researcher. We have lots of open questions. That's kind of good news and exciting for research. But in terms of explaining to people what the right answer is, it's it's kind of tough to to translate that, you know, we we don't have the, the final answers here. So I think the final answer is is to kind of cut back on sweeteners across the board because we don't have evidence that they're really helping anything. Mm -hmm. And to read labels, I remember some of my early days as a dietitian teaching people that anything that ended in O-S-E was a sugar. Just being able to see how much sweetener is in our food, I did not know about the English muffins. That is amazing. Oh, it is, it's shocking. It's, it's virtually impossible to find a class of foods in a grocery store that do not contain artificial sweetener. Now, this isn't every single, obviously, it's not every single example of these, but it's often surprising. So the, the type of English muffin that contains sucralose actually is one that has other label attributes that would make you think that it's specifically healthy. So whole grain grain (laughs) or double protein. Yeah. 
And you, as you just said, this is the other thing that makes it difficult. You've taught people that anything that ends in O-S-E is a sugar. Well, sucralose ends in O-S-E. So it's two letters. You have to be able to find that L and A to understand that there's an artificial sweetener in that product. And I often point out that this stuff has made its way into my household, not because I've purchased it, but because I'm not the only person buying things for my house. And the people who are buying it, it's not that they don't understand that they, you know, that this is really not what they should be consuming. They just don't have the time, energy, patience, eyesight, whatever it is, to read that tiny print and understand that they've brought something into the house that has an artificial sweetener in it. Yeah, it's very complicated for consumers. And what makes it especially difficult is when we have disinformation campaigns or where your science is debated in the press, your research may be discredited, or people with financial interests in the artificial sweetener industry. I'm speaking specifically of the Calorie Control Council. I'm very familiar with them because they will be at the Academy of Nutrition Dietetics Association annual meeting every year. And when we are receiving our education from a company that makes its profits from these compounds, it becomes even more difficult for educators to reach consumers. And then consumers pick up the newspaper and they see, you know, oh, you might have done very good science, Dr. Swithers, but you know what? There's somebody who also has a PhD that's going to say it's not good science. What do you do in that situation? Right. And for me, this was all really fascinating. Um, It's almost a a big cultural difference. As we talked about at the, the beginning of the program, my background is in, in psychology, um, and so uh, unlike nutrition, most people who are in psychology, the kind of partnership with industry, this idea that industry funding is either necessary or, or much less a good thing, that's, that's not really part of the culture. And when I was doing my training, it was at a time when neuroscience was debating these issues with regard to psychiatric medications. So the medical field went, you know, kind of went through this process of at least considering the possibility that financial conflicts of interest could be really bad for science and for patients and working through these rules by which people were required to disclose relationships with companies so that you could understand that if the person who was running the study looking at a psychiatric medication was getting money from the drug manufacturer, that that might be a problem. So this is you know this is a lesson that we ought to have learned from the tobacco industry where we you know with the with hindsight it's very clear to see that the tobacco industry engaged in these practices of intentionally muddying the waters of funding science where the entire goal was to produce an outcome that was inconsistent with what had been previously published with the idea that if you can just get people to say, well, they don't really know whether this is true or not. I'm just going to keep smoking my cigarettes or drinking my sodas because the science is muddy. That's all the industry needs to do. And it's pretty obvious that they have a vested interest in doing that. Their goal is to sell their products. And so it's easy to understand why consumers 
would be confused by this. And it's easy to see, because research funding is so tight, it's easy to see why scientists would be attracted to getting money from industry. But but when we start to talk about public health and obesity, it's very difficult to see how there couldn't be a conflict of interest between any sort of industry-sponsored research in this field and, and the outcome. Um, because, you know, the industry is supposed to be selling their products. That's not to say that I think that every researcher who's ever taken interest funding has been compromised or that the, all of the science is bad, but it, it's a very difficult problem to solve, and it's certainly the case that industry groups like the Calorie Control Council, they exist simply to promote their products, and they don't really appear to care very much how they go about doing that. Mm-hmm. Well, I think the article that was written about your research And I will provide a link to that. It's www.publicintegrity.org. And if you just simply Google Susan Swithers, it's titled Critic of Artificial Sweeteners Pilloried by Industry-Backed Scientists. And I believe in this case it was the American Council on Science and Health, which is a name that sounds so trustworthy, but it's certainly backed by all kinds of industry support. It's a fascinating article about what happens to someone. And I think that your response on what can consumers do today, and that is simply cut back on all sweeteners, is really good advice. This is when I get the pushback from industry, part of me understands this is not remotely surprising. This is what they're supposed to do. And, but then I, I sort of step back and think, what am I actually saying that's so controversial and (laughs) problematic? I'm telling people not to drink a sweetened beverage every day and to generally cut back overall on the amount of sweetener they're consuming, which, like I said, I don't think that – I don't understand how this could possibly be controversial questions. And I think what really frightened me was there's a petition – as far as I know, it's still in front of the FDA – to allow artificial sweeteners into milk that can be then sold to kids. Yes. So flavored milks like chocolate milk and vanilla milk, those have been, for the most part, taken out of school lunches because they can't meet the new criteria for healthy lunch standards. And so kids will pick chocolate milk because many people may not understand chocolate milk has got sugar added to it. So it's not just flavored, it's flavored and sweetened, and that's, probably why kids like it more than unflavored versions. And right now, the FDA rules say that if you put an artificial sweetener into that milk, you can no longer call it milk. And so there's, there are petitions to basically change that so that now kids could get diet chocolate milk <laughs> or whatever it's going to be called in schools. And that's what's really, really scary is that that we're trying to now, um, instead of just saying, wait a minute, maybe we should just pull out the sweet, you know, the, the sugar sweetened versions and, and get kids accustomed to consuming unsweetened versions of products or products that have less sweetener in them, less sugar in them. No, we'll take those out, but we'll put artificial sweeteners instead. That, it's hard to see how that's actually going to solve anything. We're going to have to close on that, and I think it's a wonderful message to consider the unintended consequences of well-intentioned actions. 
And I will provide links to your most recent research as well as this excellent expose of what happens when the industry feels like your research might be threatening their bottom line. So in closing, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Susan Swithers at Purdue University, behavioral neuroscientist and professor of psychological sciences. I want to thank our listeners for joining us and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thank you again, Dr. Swithers. We will have to have you back when you have additional research to share with us. Excellent. Thank you.